Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust, Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com now. Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chapar, Director of News at The Block, and I am very excited for today's episode, even though it's 8 a.m. I've only had one cup of coffee, but I'm going to make it work. I'm going to bring the energy today. On the other side of the mic, we have Jason Choi, General Partner at Spartan Group, a dear friend, and obviously in his own right, a prolific podcaster. Jason, thanks so much for joining the show. We have a lot to dig into. Yeah, thanks for having me, Frank. Big fan of uh, all the work that you've done and really appreciate all the value and fun that you bring to the space. Well, you know, I put on my pants <laughs> two legs at a time, just like everybody else. Uh, Jason, there's a lot for us to talk about, but I want to kind of start with the metaverse and, and almost dovetail off of the episode we did with Kyle Samani at Multicoin where we kind of unpacked his vision for what the next big thing in NFTs is, how he sees that space evolving. I figured since you're sort of deep in the weeds on the metaverse and you had this really great tweet thread that I was looking at yesterday, maybe we can start there. How do you see the metaverse evolving? Yeah, so I guess even to take a step back, a lot of people have different definitions for what the metaverse means. Uh, to me, it's just a kind of a virtual world. And in that theme, it encompasses things like games or social experiences or e-commerce within a virtual reality or, or a virtual world. So, you know, I, I guess it's a, probably a good opportunity to talk about Spartan launching a new fund that's dedicated to this vision as well. Um, so the reason why we're excited about this metaverse is mostly because... We have been DeFi investors for a few years now. And what we saw was that with digital ownership, we were able to create new markets. And DeFi were, was kind of the rails for that market. You know, once people were able to trade tokenized units of uh, you know, fungible assets or tokenized real world assets, uh, they started to create markets around it. And we started to see the same signs happening in the gaming sector, right? With projects like Axie, um, which eventually evolved into this wider vision for the metaverse. 
But just before we dive into the, the weeds of it, I guess very broadly, we're mostly excited about the new opportunities that digital ownership will bring to both games and both social experiences and e-commerce in, in these kind of new virtual reality experiences. So let's let's do a bit of an Aristotelian definition of terms. When people think of metaverse, obviously it may not even necessarily be something that's blockchain based. So is Axiom metaverse as much as a crypto uh, voxels is a metaverse as much as a decentraland is a metaverse. Do you see them all kind of looking the same or having their own specific focuses or niche audiences? Yeah, I think the the term the metaverse term is quite broad. I mean, it existed before crypto, as you mentioned, right? So things like Club Penguin, technically a metaverse. Uh, things like Second Life, uh, technically a metaverse as well. And some people would argue that even social uh, social media, social networks, are technically virtual representations of social life. So you could define it as as a metaverse. So for us, we really use the term very broadly when we describe our metaverse thesis. We're really just describing um kind of you know online gaming experience or social experiences that are uh, defined by digital ownership. So I guess that that's the difference between what we focus on versus, you know, what came before, right? The club penguins of the world. We only care about the metaverses or games where the users are empowered through ownership. So you can own the in-game assets, you can own your characters, you can own part of the game, you can share in part of the value that you create for the game. Um, so we, we pretty much spend most of our time studying protocols like that and investing in teams that are building into that vision. Mm. So, I mean, even crypto, Twitter, to an extent, can be thought of as a <laughs> as a precursor to the ownership-based metaverses that we've seen come to the floor. So what, what happens next? What makes this space something worth investing in, right? Because right now, I think people from the outside looking in, they might go to one of these worlds, buy a plot of land, but be relatively underwhelmed by what you can actually do. And so when you see these eye-popping valuations in the billions, whether you're looking at the token valuations of something like sand or Decentraland, they're wondering, okay, but where does that value derive? Yeah, so I think to be, to, just to kind of set things in context, I do think this kind of metaphors thesis, right? This idea that there is one kind of virtual or digital world where people hang out and play games and contact comers and build all types of social experiences. I think that vision is probably like five, 10 years out because of the confluence of a few factors. So number one, so sure, you could browse worlds like uh, CryptoVoxos or Decentraland on your desktop today. But I think a lot of the immersiveness comes from experiencing it in VR. And you know, VR hardware has gone pretty far with things like Quest 2, from Oculus, but uh, you know, I, I think we're still haven't reached a price point where it's considered kind of mass adoption yet. So that's number one. Then number two is, as you said, Frank, the a lot of the experiences that exist in these worlds are pretty bare bones. So there's really not much you can do in you know Decentraland that could rival the experience you can get from, say, a AAA game. So that's why we also spend a lot of time talking to gaming studios and gaming companies who are trying to approach this metaverse vision through a game. So they're going to start to start build a game first, uh, try to bootstrap maybe the first, say, million uh, players that are active on, on the platform, and then try to expand from that point onwards. And then I think that the third layer is also the blockchain layer. So I, I think very key to this metaverse thesis is the idea that people can generally own 
and free, uh, be, be free to kind of trade their own assets uh, within these metaverses. So currently, we don't really have very robust rails for people to you know, buy things in world, for instance. Um, and there really isn't that much for people to speculate on or, or trade besides, say, maybe some in-game currencies or some NFTs. Mm. So I, I think those few verticals kind of all are still very much in the first inning. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question correctly, but I, I do think this vision is going to take you know at least five, 10 years to, to play out. And that's why for our new fund, we're structured as a very long-term venture fund as well versus you know our first fund, which was a liquid fund. Definitely want to get into the structure thesis of the fund. Another fund, just keep, just people just keep hitting me with these funds. <laughs> Um, cause it gives me stuff to do, but before we get into that, when we think about, okay, what can happen next in here, right, Jason, and most of it is, is NFTs that people can buy in these worlds. We see CVS getting in with, with trademark applications. Walmart has shown similar intentions with similar, um, when I say applications, I mean, patent applications. When do we see and do we see shopping experiences enter the metaverse where it's not just a bunch of fake, you know, nonsense JPEGs being swapped around in this virtual world, but real world experiences kind of blending in there, right? And we can we can unpack what it might be, but you know, am I picking up my heart medication <laughs> from CVS in in a virtual world or am I um getting whatever people get at Walmart? Yeah, so I, I think it's, um, so before I kind of tackle that, I, I do think that that's possible and we already see experiments being done and there's already interest from large retailers to set up uh, storefronts. Maybe, maybe at this point, it's still a marketing gimmick for a lot of them, but it, it's easy to see them kind of evolving into actual extension of e-commerce. Um, but I think even before that can happen, you kind of need almost a shelling point for people to congregate first. You need there to be enough users to be, you know, hanging out in this kind of virtual space for retailers to be interested in selling them. Um, so we haven't gotten to that point yet. And mm. we're still trying to figure out what is the best way to get people to actually engage. So it's, there's kind of a cold start problem that I alluded to in my Twitter thread as well, right? How do we you know it, it's easy to kind of create these virtual worlds with the game engines that we have today with things like Unity and Unreal. But how do you actually get people to, to come in and hang out and then incentivize developers to build on top of these worlds versus you know building their own world because they can capture more value that way? And so far, the most promising way, uh, which I think you alluded to earlier on, is building these games, uh, is building uh, very specific experiences, creating a reason for people to come in. So there's a lot of parallels you can see in kind of the Web2 world, right? With things like Fortnite really started off as... A, a kind of third-person shooter game where you can play online with people all around the world. And then, you know, because they have this critical mass of millennial or Gen Z players, they're able to extend to other experiences. So Travis Scott was able to host a concert inside a Fortnite, which I think is uh, is pretty cool. And they're able to, you know, conduct commerce with their own internal currency, uh, V-Bucks. So it's not difficult to see that kind of extending into Web3. But, you know, as opposed to, you know, one company owning the game, you have a game that is owned by the users. Instead of having just, you know, one group of developers creating experiences, you have, you know, disparate studios creating experiences inside one world. And again, you know, if you look into the Web2 world, there's already examples of this happening even outside of crypto. So one of the places that I've been hanging out the most recently is VRChat, 
which is uh, this kind of virtual reality world that you can run on your quest. You can basically walk around as, as any avatar you want that you can create. Um, and a lot of the worlds and experiences are user generated as well. And a lot of people are building just out of passion. They're not really incentivized. They're not you know, all built by one single company. But then a lot of the developers who are creating these experiences, they don't really get compensated. So whenever you go to different rooms inside VR chat, you know, you always see these banners on the walls that say, hey, scan this QR code and donate money if you enjoy the experience. So I feel like there should be a smoother experience for the creators on these kind of metaverses to capture value if there's actually actually users using them. So I think all of these kind of disparate anecdotes kind of point to this broader Web3 vision that we're seeing. But first we have to, or rather these projects need to reach critical mass to keep developers building on their sort of base layer there. Because if, if you have too much bifurcation, then do you, can, can there really be value out of the metaverse? Yeah, I think that's the same question as, you know, uh, which layer one wins, right? So one of mm. the analogies that we draw is, uh, you know, a lot of people like to compare metaverses to games. And I think that that's a very, uh, you know, that's a very apt analogy as well, because they are games. They're the virtual worlds for you to inhabit, for you to hang out in, for you to do things in, for you to have fun in. But uh, I think in Web3, the more apt analogy is layer ones, right? They are platforms on which you wish other developers will build experiences on. And if you know people come to that world and engage in those experiences, hopefully the base layer captures part of the fees. So that's very similar to Ethereum today, where every single dApp you know, pays certain fees to Ethereum miners. So in that sense, it's the same question as asking, you know, do we foresee there just being one dominant layer one and maybe a long tail of you know other layer ones making other trade-offs? I think we're probably going to see the same play out in the metaverse, but with a less extreme a power law. And that's because, uh, at least my personal opinion, is that the winning metaverse will encompass a lot of different experiences. It's going to be games and social and commerce and all that. But there's also going to be a fat tail of metaverses that are very game-specific. And you know, the, the, what gives me conviction in that is looking at just very specific games, for instance, like World of Warcraft, where they don't need to extend to e-commerce. They don't need to create social elements. They're just mm. one game, but they generated $10 billion in revenue alone. Um, and, you know, the parent company, Blizzard, was sold for, I don't know, $70 billion earlier this year. So the, the opportunity for commerce within single games with very defined experiences is still massive. So you don't have to be you know, the metaverse substrate that supports every single app in the ecosystem for you to accrue value. I think there's a lot of opportunity for people to carve out their own niche. So what was your own journey like? Spartan's a really interesting firm. It's pretty dynamic, right? You do investing, but there's also a consulting M&A advisory element there. Have you always been a metaverse guy or did you just catch the bug recently like like i did are you a, a newbie fomoing <laughs> or a storied sort of sage yeah so probably a good time to kind of take a step back and kind of tell the listeners my journey a little bit so i guess i got my start in a venture so I, I grew up in hong kong but my dream was to you know, live and work in the states so when i was a student in the states back in 2016 I helped started this decentralized venture fund that was backing you know, Web2 companies, SaaS and all that. And then that experience led me to wanting to work with founders. And unfortunately, or fortunately for some, Trump was president at that time. So the visa applications were all time low. 
So I was basically kicked out of the US back to Asia. But at that time, I was already running my crypto podcast for over a year just out of personal curiosity. Um, and I thought that was a great opportunity to kind of just jump into crypto full time. And that's kind of how I got into Spartan. Basically heard about a former partner at Goldman leaving his career to start this boutique fund. So I met up with him and, you know, back then we had a small co-working space, a little bit of capital, but he has, you know, 20 years more experience than I ever had, uh, which virtually no other single crypto fund manager at that point had. So I was very excited to partner up with him and learn from him. So yeah, we, we started up building up the business from there. I focused primarily on the investment side and we were very much DeFi guys because we are very fundamentals driven. So that means we look at you know, things like fees and cash flows. We look on chain at uh, usage data. And back then there wasn't much usage to speak of in like metaverse and NFTs. So all of the involvement we had was from a purely personal context, right? So some of us were buying land in Decentraland. Our advisory business, uh, which you mentioned earlier, was advising Dapper Labs, which was the company behind CryptoKitties uh, back in 2019. But we weren't very active in investing in, in kind of NFTs and metaverses until we came across Axie Infinity. So that was, that was I want to say, a year and a half ago when we started to realize that, okay, there's some activity happening here. There's some fees being generated here. There's no spectacular growth yet. So we asked one of our analysts uh, to look into it. So he actually came on the show pretty recently. So you know, after he looked into it, we thought it's quite interesting. And the analyst actually left briefly after. Uh, so we had to kind of cut all his positions that he pitched to the fund. But the one that we decided not to cut was, was the Axie position because we thought, okay, there's clearly something happening here. We're a little bit skeptical of the sustainability of the game itself, but you know the, the numbers were proving us wrong. So that ended up being a very lucrative bet. And from that experience, it kind of taught us that, okay, there, there's clearly a different type of users in these kind of NFTs, metaverse slash gaming vertical versus the DeFi projects that we're very used to. So we spend the next few months just researching everything we can, diving into the deep end for a lot of these different NFT projects and gaming projects. And we made a few investments. And afterwards, we decided to you know, formalize the structure and set up a fund to do this properly. So that's pretty much been the past um, 12 months, I'd say. Uh, so that's been a pretty big whirlwind. Being a fundamentalist in the crypto market, it's like being a vegan in an all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> That is very true. Now I'm getting hungry. Um, no, it's interesting. You know, I sometimes just assume that if someone's on the show, then the audience should know that they're important. So I don't always get deep into the background, but it, it has been a long journey for you guys. So now you're launching, or at least I reported in June 2021, the $110 million DeFi fund. So this is now a fund dedicated to the metaverse you said it's going to be around 200 million is it the same lps coming in and how many checks do you expect to write you know give us that rundown yeah so the first fund uh, was a DeFi venture fund we actually already started deploying months before the announcement and we you know wrote a lot of the investments into that fund that way so that fund is mostly deployed so the MetaFirst fund, we're focusing on slightly larger check sizes. We're still focusing on C to Series A, but you know we write up to $5 million to $10 million in check size. And in terms of the types of investments we make, we're focusing on three different layers. So first, I'd say is the infrastructure layer. So this is where you know, blockchains, where uh, the assets are held to come in. So things like Immutable, you know, Flow, Ethereum, Solana are good examples of that. Um, and then there's the game engines, 
which allow developers to actually create experiences and then potentially also hardware. Uh, but we haven't focused very much on that just because I think that's a very different skill set. And within this infrastructure layer, we also have the metaverse layer, which we touched on a bit. And then, you know, some some applications that are built to be interoperable between different worlds and then, you know, base infrastructure like identity layer. And then the second layer that we want to focus on is the actual experiences. So this is the actual games or, you know, studios that may be helping retailers build in metaverse storefronts or these are social uh, social apps like virtual chat rooms, for instance. So we're talking to a lot of studios there and making some bets there. And then the final layer that sits on top of all of this is the value add layer, which we define as things that are outside of the metaverse, right? So these are things like guilds or infrastructure for guilds or studios, or maybe discovery and aggregation layer, marketplaces for NFTs, DeFi rails, B2B stack, and so on. So that takes up quite a bit of our time as well. But yeah, so those are the three major areas we're focusing on investing, and we're bringing on board a few more people on the team to focus on that. Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling and rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and Prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com now. We need to build a podcast studio in the metaverse <laughs> where we can we can share a space and um, commiserate about the slings and arrows of running a show. <laughs> I love that. That would be awesome. I wonder who like these builders are, right? I guess it's it, it can't be that much more difficult than doing something in um, Minecraft. I guess if like a 12-year-old can do it, is it that simple? I have no idea. I've I've seen, I've talked to people about some of these different lounges and stuff. It sounds like a lot of work goes into it, but a lot of work goes into Minecraft too. Have you built any? Yeah. So um, when we were looking at the central land, we were uh, testing out the creator tools. 
and then when I was playing around with VR Chat, I was actually downloaded Unity on onto my home desktop, which which killed the device basically. But yeah, it, w- it wasn't too hard to use it to build worlds. But it's funny that you mentioned Minecraft because one of the projects that we've been tracking called NFT Worlds did this very clever thing where instead of creating their own developer toolkit or their own game engine, they basically tie their NFT lands to servers on Minecraft. So you can actually use Minecraft to build lands that are within this NFT world metaverse. So that's really clever because you know it, it taps into a user base of, I think, 120 or 130 million active monthly users. Uh, that already know how to use Minecraft. So, do I foresee, you know, the 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 winning metaverse being built on Minecraft? I'm not sure, but you know, things like that that go in the direction of lowering the barriers for people to build experiences. I think it, it are, is pretty bullish for the whole space. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. Is that something they're allowed to do? Yeah, yeah. Um, so. There, I guess the the asset layer doesn't sit on top of Minecraft, right? It doesn't sit inside Minecraft. So the NFTs are still built on Ethereum. Uh, your ownership of the NFT is still on Ethereum, but each NFT references a seed that corresponds to a server on Minecraft. So technically, there, there's really nothing that Minecraft can do to shut them down. And eventually, I think the project does want to spin up their own server so that they're less dependent as well. But yeah, so it, it is a separate layer. Um, so no, not not a lot of risk there. Okay, let's talk about how you go about investing in guilds. Like, is there a separate, distinct thesis for that? And maybe you can walk the audience through the importance of guilds and and then how you go about investing in that category. Yeah, so I think the challenge with guilds now is that there's uh, there's two major types of guilds that we see, right? So uh, one of the founders we invested in, Peter from Blockchain Space, uh, Lexa categorize them as like macro guilds and micro guilds. So macro guilds are the large guilds with massive balance sheets that you hear about all the time, right? Yield Guild Games, Merit Circle, and maybe Avocado Guild as well. So these are the guys that, um, especially for YGG, I think a lot of their market value comes from their balance sheet, from their investments that make in new funds or in new games from SAFs, for instance. And then there the micro guilds, which are long tail guilds, and there's probably about twenty thousand of them. They could be operated by one person or a team of you know a few people, and they're actually heavily reliant on scholars. But the challenge with a lot of these guilds is that they're all still very reliant on one game, which is Axie, or one type of game, uh, which is Axie esque type of games, which is a bit of a market risk. So. Our vision for guilds is that they're going to encompass more than just providing scholarships, right? Scholarships is something that's very, very specific to Axie and games like Corbata. We envision guilds to be almost like a marketing channel for games where they will help games with not just onboarding users, but potentially also being involved in developing the games. So you bring back to the example of like NFT worlds, there is a function where, you know, you can stake your worlds. If, if say, you don't know how to play around with Minecraft, or you don't have time to do that, you can stake your worlds and lend it out to people who will then take a fee to help you build experiences on top. So, you know, we foresee guilds potentially crossing over into the studio uh, vertical where they start actually, you know, contributing to creation of experiences on different worlds. In terms of, you know, how we select guilds to invest in, it is a it is a bit hard to invest in guilds now just because um, the barrier to entry is reasonably low, right? So if I put out a tweet saying, hey, does anyone want a scholarship? I'll probably get like 100 DMs immediately. So anybody can start a guild today. So the differentiating factor really comes down to the team. So whether the team has you know gaming experiences prior to crypto, that that's really the highest signal that we can look for right now. 
So what do you think are some of the more overlooked opportunities in the crypto market right now? Yeah. Um, as much as I'm excited about metaverse slash gaming, uh, you know, my my thesis is very much five, 10 years out. So in terms of like right now, what are some things that I think is overlooked? Um, I do think general DeFi is is very much unloved and it reflects in the price as well. Right, In the past two years, we've been down only in DeFi land, but there's a lot of interesting things happening there. For instance, like Options Vault, one of the fastest growing non-incentivized use cases, like projects like Ribbon, for instance. I do think tranche products will have their moment as well, given how much stable coins there are sidelined right now. It makes sense for there to be some sort of fixed rate protocol. So we're pretty excited about projects like Notional, and I guess the crossover between DeFi and NFTs, right? So DeFi rails for NFTs, for people to lend out their NFTs or collateralize the NFTs to take out loans. So I do think those areas are relatively overlooked right now. How about the convergence of DeFi and the metaverse or DeFi-like rails for the metaverse? I, You know, maybe... I mean, there's some parallels between what we see in traditional real estate world with some of the stuff that could crop up at the intersection of DeFi and Metaverse. Yeah. So it's confusing to talk about this because we often conflate NFTs with the Metaverse thesis just because we see NFTs as such a core part of it. I think most of the overlap between DeFi and Metaverse happens in the NFT slash DeFi arena, you know, less so the um, the actual virtual world itself. So mm-hmm. I, I don't foresee, you know, users going into a VR world to, to trade on Uniswap, for instance. But that would be pretty fun. That would be pretty funny. Imagine like a metaverse, like a floor of the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> we get, get liquidated in VR. That'd be very intense. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, I, I think that there's probably, um, you know, probably a niche market for that. Um, but I do think the bigger opportunities are in ways to conduct commerce around your NFTs. Uh, I guess the three major areas is one, fractionalizing your NFTs into fungibles. So that there's sort of a niche market for that right now. Uh, the other is collateralizing your NFTs and then taking a loan against them. But the biggest challenge there is liquidations, right? How do you determine how to liquidate this NFT? How do you determine the price for that NFT? And then the, the final one is lending out your NFTs. So maybe lending out to players so that you can run a, a guild, but without the infrastructure of a guild. So, you know, one person guild kind of thing. Or you can lend it out to a studio to maybe build things on top of your world. So those are maybe like three big examples of DeFi slash metaverse. But none of these have really taken off yet. I think we're very much in you know the ICO days still. Mm, still in the ICO days. You see a lot of these like DOJ announcements about different ICO scams. And so many of them I never heard of. <laughs> like we were getting scammed by these things. Obviously, of course, BitConnect was was a big one. That there was a recent action taken against uh, against them. So it's it's rare. We don't have a lot of podcasters on the show. So what is it? How does that add value? I think I talked to a lot of VCs, and yeah, Jason, how many episodes have you done? It must be like hundreds. Yeah, I think I've done uh, one hundred and eighty since twenty eighteen. Okay, actually, I beat you by 10, so... Oh, nice. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> Not that it's a competition. Um, who Does that help open up um, the doors to, you know, to deal flow? Maybe I should become a VC. What am I doing <laughs> writing stories? Could be signing big checks. 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it is mostly a passion project for me. Um, I think the reason why I started it was because I ran out of blogs to read, and I wanted to. So back in 2017, I read this book called Crypto Assets, written by Chris Berniski, who runs a fund called Placeholder today. And I thought, okay, if I just reached out, he's probably a busy guy. He's not going to pick up the phone with some random college kid. So why don't I tell him that I have a podcast that I can, you know, promote him to an audience of I don't know ten at the time. Surprisingly, uh, people like him said yes, and that that was the reason why I did it to talk to people, to learn from people, and eventually evolved into, you know, a thing that a lot of people seem to follow. Um, and it became a platform for founders to talk about the new products. So yeah, it, it does help with like deal flow. It does help with, um, you know, marketing and hiring. But you know, at the end of the day, it's really just a way for me to learn. So you know, for people who want to see what I'm interested in and what I'm learning about, you know, just follow the podcast. That's probably the best way. So who else have you had on that have maybe inspired or made you change the way you think about a certain topic? Yeah. So I recently had the guitarist for a band that I followed since I was a kid. Um, so I, I'm a huge heavy metal fan. Um, this band called Avenged Sevenfold was a Grammy nominated band and their lead guitarist and their singer. Actually, the entire band was dropping this kind of NFT and they also built their own little corner in sandbox their own little metaverse to host i don't know virtual concerts fan engagement events in um so i thought that was really interesting because you know uh, metal musicians aren't necessarily known to be very um tech embracing but they were one of the few that's really out there and doing this so yeah so i spoke to him uh his stage name is sinister gates i spoke to him and you know learned about their their journey into nfts and about how it actually created a better way for them to engage with their fans directly, especially in a time like this when they can't really tour. So I think that really opened my eyes about the actual benefits, the commercial benefits of NFTs beyond just you know the hype, beyond just this kind of sci-fi vision of the metaverse. Yeah, I mean, there's an actual practical use case there, especially in a world that's becoming increasingly more disparate and internet-first, work-from-home that's a way to connect with audiences and also expand the sort of audience you're able to reach. I mean, I was dri- I was on a long drive the other day and listening to the radio and they were doing all these ticket giveaways for Billy Joel in a <laughs> city that's about two hours from me. I'm like, I'm not going to drive there. But if there was like a virtual alternative, I'd love to jam out with Joel you know, get it at Joel NFT. I mean, this is a new, this is a new way to engage with people that didn't exist before. Yeah, it, it it's more than just about you know holding concerts in the virtual world as well. It's also sets up a direct engagement channel for artists and their fans, right? So if you build a Facebook page right now as an artist, you still have to pay Facebook if you want to send a post out to your to your followers to a targeted post uh, to your followers. Whereas you know uh, with an NFT within a day at you know almost zero cost except for a gas fee you can drop everyone a nft that's redeemable for actual tickets and that's actually what the band that i referenced did uh, so i think a day after they minted their nfts they dropped everyone two tickets that's redeemable for their next headline event so that's a direct fan engagement channel that you can't really do with any type of uh, web2 uh, infrastructure so that's also, you know, that's part of the reason why we're we're so excited about things like NFTs, just because there's an actual commercial angle there, which attracts a lot of artists and you know actual users, not just kind of speculators. Well, there better be because if you look at some of the valuations of these early stage NFT projects, Series A, hundred million dollar plus valuations. 
they've got to have some sort of big opportunity in the next five to 10 years to justify something that large. Yeah, I think a lot of the projects that seem to grab the most headline are definitely the, the, the more expensive ones. Um, you know, there are a lot of smaller projects that we invest in, you know, specific games or maybe rails that, you know, are more reasonable. But yeah, in general, I think it's not just specific to, you know, metaverse or gaming, right? It's um, you know, all across crypto and risk assets and venture as an asset class. Everything's going pretty bonkers, especially in the past two years. Have you noticed any sort of cooling off as of late? Yes, I, I think so. Um, so since November, the market has the crypto market has pretty much been trading down, and I think that hasn't really hit most investors. But then, you know, recently, we're still seeing massive headlines of massive funds being raised. Right. So two years ago, a hundred million dollar fund is massive, and yesterday, Bain Cap just announced they're doing. Um, forget how big that fund was. Five hundred and sixty. Yeah, five hundred and sixty, and it seems like every day we hear about you know half a billion dollar fund being launched. So there is a lot of sideline capital, um, but in the interim, I do see, you know, some investors maybe pulling out of rounds or having slightly more leverage when it comes to, yeah, uh, you know, negotiating for valuations. Yeah, I've noticed that too, uh, especially maybe on the token side of the market, people are pulling out of some of those deals as caution grips, basically everything. Yeah, yeah, um, I think. You know the the general um, the general venture market. I don't see it correcting you know significantly just because of how much competition there is and how valuation insensitive a lot of the um, a lot of the larger funds are. Um, but yeah, I, I I do foresee that you know I don't think this level of froth and speculation can last forever. Yeah, I think you know people are getting ag- aggressive, especially if you look at the the top tier venture firms they're they're not really slowing down it seems yeah it's interesting to think about how how the space will evolve and my working hypothesis is that you either have to be very thesis specific so similar to kind of what we're doing with the defi specific fund metaverse specific fund and having very unique and clear value add or going or go super super early or you have to go super massive and play the management fee game and everything that's kind of in the middle, kind of all these generalized funds might find it hard to compete just because there's so many of them right now. Yeah. So I guess we can maybe just wrap things up with with the new fund that you guys are set to announce or in the process of of ramping up. Uh, what what else should we know about it? Um, yeah. So I would love for people to kind of check out um, the Block Crunch podcast. You know, every week I interview different founders, investors in the space. I try to interview founders that are slightly under the radar. So if you're keen to learn about new projects, definitely tune in. And we're trying to do a new Shark Tank series as well, where we invite founders of projects that maybe haven't even launched yet to come come and pitch to basically involve people into the venture process. Just because a lot of people seem to have this perception that venture is very uh, opaque. So that's number one, I guess. Number two. If you would follow me on Twitter, I share a lot of my long form and short form writing there. So my handle is just at Mr. Jason Choi. Got it, Jason. Jason Choi at Spartan Group. Thank you so much for joining the show. It's been a pleasure and an honor. We'll have to have you on again soon. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me on, Frank. The Scoop will be back with you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day. <laughs>